Hello, and welcome to the Mossable Podcast. This is Mo. Before we begin, we want to inform our listeners that today's episode will include a sensitive discussion about child sexual abuse. We understand that this topic can be distressing for some, and we want to prioritize the well-being of our audience. So if you find that this subject matter could be triggering or uncomfortable for you, we highly encourage you to exercise self-care and consider whether listening to this episode is in your best interest. Remember, your mental and emotional health comes first. But for those who choose to stay and join us in this episode, we aim to approach this topic with the utmost respect and sensitivity, as we believe it's crucial to shed light on important issues such as these that impact our communities. Thank you for being a part of these meaningful conversations. Now enjoy the show. Welcome back today. I have someone who reached out to us to um, come share their story. I love when we get those kind of responses because one, it shows that we're having some form of reach and, and the ability to also share diverse stories. So that's super exciting. Our guest today, you know, has, you know, done quite a lot. So she graduated from Antioch University with a master's degree in psychology and counseling in 1989. So for a lot of our listeners, where were you in 1989? I know where I was. I was probably still in diapers. Um, <laughs> she could... That's, that's, that's not good. <laughs> but hey, you know, really glad to have you here because we can learn a lot more from you. She co-directed a sexual abuse treatment program called Parents United in Santa Fe, New Mexico until 1991 before going into private practice full-time. She's been a psychotherapist treating children, families, couples, and individual adults for over 30 years. And she has worked extensively with abuse and dysfunctional family dynamics, their aftermath, and some of the most important elements for healing. She's also an author of having published two books, one called The Light in the Darkness and Into the Fire. And she's also just reading a new book called American in Therapy. She lives in Taos, New Mexico, and is retired now, just focusing on her writing. Everyone, please join me welcoming Miss Phyllis Livett to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here today, Mo. It's just an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. you. And I'll be on my best behavior knowing that we have a therapist on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I might start asking you a question. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) All right, let's just just talk about how you grew up and uh, your upbringing and because we're going to be focusing really, the major theme here is psychology, you know, your books and just the things you do. Were there any events in your childhood that also kind of you think tilted it towards this field? Oh, totally. Um, which is probably true for many people that there are sort certain formative events that sort of steer us in a direction without us maybe even knowing it. Certainly I didn't know right, that. Right. But you know, I grew up on a residential block in Plainfield, New Jersey, and you know, my dad worked, my mom was a stay at home mom. And I had a brother and a sister and, you know, we went to school and we did our homework and everything looked, you know, pretty normal on the outside. And in a lot of ways, my life was um, just pretty ordinary, you know, go to school, do your homework, go to the library, go to museums, that kind of thing. My my family was very educated and they had a strong emphasis on education. Um, And unfortunately, there was some uh, abuse in my childhood and... And I did not have any memory of it. I totally wiped it out. 
And, and I think it happened very early on, which is not uncommon that you don't have conscious memories when things mm. happen early on. And so it, you know, I've sort of told this story in, you know, 10 different ways, but basically it just really, really colored my whole life. And I, from the very, from a very young age, I thought there was something very wrong with me and I didn't know what it was. Um, and I was, I, I'm probably an introvert by nature, but I, I think it made me more introverted and more unsure of myself and socially unsure of myself, unsure of myself when I became a teenager and entered the dating world and had a great, you know, just didn't do that. I just didn't do it. <laughs> um, and I kind of became a bookworm. And so long story short, um, and I will say this, along the way, I had some very profound breakthrough experiences, not of remembering, remembering what happened to me, but of just having a profound connection to, I would call it like my deepest self or nature or something higher than myself. And they would, I would have these breakthrough moments that were so profound and so life-giving, but they were also confusing because then I would sort of descend back into this unknown kind of dark space, um, cloudy space inside myself. So to make a long story very short, um, I grew up, I went to college, I got married, I had three children, and none of that darkness went away. And I uh, was writing in my journal one day, and it, it started to like unfold. Something started to come through in journal writing that something happened to me. And I went on this deep search about what that was. It was almost like my unconscious said, enough already, you have to start to remember. And not too long after that, I went to therapy for the first time. And that's where the whole journey of remembering began. And it was a really hard journey. Um, went on for several years. And, and in the process of that, I decided to go back to school and get my own degree in psychology. So I had my own background in that. And then I worked in a sexual abuse treatment yeah. program. And that was fantastic experience. I mean, obviously, the subject is oh, sad yeah. and difficult. But I learned a lot. And then I kind of took my own experience and my school experience and my internship experience, um, which was in a sexual abuse treatment program. Um, and I took all that to my private practice. And one, I'll just say this real quick and then please jump in. Um, what, I dis what I've discovered, and I think a lot of therapists could tell you the same thing, the prevalence of abuse and neglect in our society is really quite, quite epidemic, yeah. quite epidemic. And the suffering that people feel behind closed doors that they try not to show, me being one of them, um, is profound. Yeah. And it really needs to have a spotlight of healing on it. Not a spotlight of blame, but a spotlight of healing. Yeah. Yeah. Man, as you were talking, I just, I kept sighing and just, you know, because your story reflects mine as, as you know, with mm -hmm. the abuse at, starting at the age of three. And it's funny how... I just like it. And I was on a track, you know, on a train track and then that happened and I got derailed, you know, and right. the way, oh, so I am, I'm a scientist and I've also worked with patients with HIV. Oh. There's this theory of, you know, when wow. the virus infiltrates your, your system in a way, your DNA, almost like it replicates it and kind of stains it in a way. And then it's, 
irrevocably linked to it. And that's been my life as far as the trauma. Like, even in moments of happiness, it's still punctuated by those events. But that's there's, right. there's a healing hope in the sense that, and I'm aware of just those triggers. I'm aware, I'm, I'm more aware than most people might be about their condition because that's what happens to you when you are violated at a young age you become so happy i can enter a room and read the room like you know the dangerous person that's right and that level of awareness as a child is just so much and i think um even you going back and having to learn more about yourself and even putting yourself in a space where you're working with sexual abuse that's power right there because it's almost like sometimes why you're trying to counsel and inform and provide hope you're yeah. almost like re-traumatizing yourself because you're listening to this, you're hearing this, and there's no way you would want to compare and contrast and draw from your own world of compassion. So thanks for sharing that. And to your hope of, um, to your statement about just how we need to acknowledge the epidemic of this because it's happening. And there's a lot of us that, yeah. I think my own tragedy was, what happened to me was sad enough, but I didn't think I could tell my parents, you know? It wasn't until yeah. um, I'm 37 now, 36 now, right? Three years ago, three decades wow. that I was able to tell my parents because for so yeah. long, I just, and that was really the most shameful part of it. Like why I couldn't tell my parents. I had good reasons because I thought my mom was going to be so broken. Or I didn't think they were not going to believe me. I knew they would believe me, but I was trying to shield oh. them, you know? So, yeah. um, I don't know how it was for you if your parents, you know, were involved at any level, if you're able to open up to them or anything like that, if you're able to share that. Well, I didn't remember, start remembering until I was in my, uh, I guess the earliest memory that was sort of vague started in my mid thirties. And then I really began that search in earnest in my early forties. So my parents were still alive. And at one point I did tell them some of it. I did not tell oh, them all of it. I just yes, was not yes. able to yes, do that. Yes. Um, and you know what I found? I always felt like I was a coward because I couldn't really come out oh, with it. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that's not mm-hmm. true. And speaking of it was really for my own healing. It wasn't for the response. Um, and I didn't get a bad response and I didn't get a great response, I would mm. say. Um, but it was such a relief to my psyche that I spoke it. And, and that was a part of my healing. And, and I can tell you today um, that it's still hard for me to say it. And I just, and I know it's a part of my story. It's a part of my healing. It's a part of my work as a psychotherapist. Yeah. It's a part of everything I've written. It's a part of, you know, whatever I feel like my service and my contribution is. It's, it's absolutely inex- inextricable from yeah. that. And it's still hard to own because I think we still have a lot of stigma that I internalized. And so I just have to work with that because, you know, the last thing that I want is for anyone else to feel stigmatized. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, so I know that, I'm sorry I keep going back to this because I think it's so important what you're talking about. Hmm. So I know for mine, there's some things I remembered, but there's some things I cannot remember. Almost like my brain yeah. is blocking it out. And I know there's this book that is like my trauma Bible. It's um, The Body Keeps the Score. I'm sure you know it. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh-huh. um, my, there's a, there are corporal sensations I feel when I smell some things or I hear a word and it's almost yeah. taking me back to that place again. But at some events, I cannot remember. I know if I should try to bring them to four, 
it's almost going to, and if I'm not in the safety of a therapist or just, you know, a community that can hold me back together again, it's like to what end, right? And I know your brain does mm-hmm. that, you know, trying to protect you from trauma, but I'm curious about you, about yours, how you never even remembered until you were 30 something. Yeah, I, I think that I never felt safe enough to do that. And I don't know. And I think it's not that I was safe then necessarily. Yeah. I wasn't in a good, good marriage at that time. Uh, in fact, I probably felt really undone uh, by the relationship that I was in. And I think, I think it's different for different people. I think some people really do start to remember when they course, feel really safe course, in their yeah. lives. And I think some people, it's like, it just can't wait any mm. longer. And you're like you like it when you have to throw up. You just have to throw up. Right. And you can't stop <laughs> right, it. Right. I think it was more like that for me. And I'm grateful. You know, I'm really grateful because um, because I over the several years that I worked really intensively with the memories that came up for me, um, I feel like it really did release some great toxicity from my system. And and it was it wasn't easy. And because it took time and because it wasn't easy, it's just given me so much compassion for people. This is like there are and there are people that are suffering you know, massive trauma that they're, that they have no help for. And that, that was part of the inspiration behind my present book, America in Therapy, because there's people all over the world suffering from discrimination and poverty and gender biases and discrimination and, um, war, you know, ongoing conflict that have no help. They have no help for the trauma that they're sustained, that they've sustained. They have no help for the after effects of the PTSD that they're living and they're acting out and they're acting in and probably are just as much of a mystery to themselves as I was. I was a mystery to myself. And so, you know, part of the motivation, one of the big motivations for my book was let's take everything we know out of our private therapy offices and put it out for everyone in the world. And that was really the goal of my book. These are the things I learned from what happened to me, from working with hundreds of people. These are the things I learned. These are the things I learned about what it looks like when abuse goes unrecognized and untreated. And these are the things we've learned from the best psychotherapy about what helps to heal and what we need to heal and how we can help each other heal. And so there's those two sides to what I wrote. And it's not necessarily common knowledge. And I realize that because when I talk to people, they're like, Oh, I never heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. Man, this is just for a point of quick clarification would be your, if you're able to disclose that, because I wanted to just, you know, be able to really have a robust understanding your abuse. Was it at a younger age? It was uh, more than once. It was at a very young age. Okay. Very. Yeah. Yeah. And then later, Yeah. If you could go back now and try to p- put a thread through just your experiences from how you went through those abuse, you know, and then at the point of slow realization that, oh my gosh, this is what my brain has been trying to protect me from. What are some, yeah. for those who might be stuck in that fugue-like state, let me just use that term, even though it might not be quite correct. How can they, what are some of the corporal sensations you had? And I know it might differ from different, for different people based on right. you know, maybe the environment but what were the signs that men sh- early intervention have been key and i'm asking for those who might be stuck in that who might not even be able to recollect or put those two things together like the reason why i'm behaving like this could be because maybe i was abused but i don't yeah. my brain is still trying to block that from happening as far as the realization yeah 
Yeah. I mean, there's so many answers to that question, but you're basically asking me what are some of the identifiable yes, symptoms? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So necessitate yeah. early intervention, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, and I'll say some of mine, but I'll also say, because I didn't have all of them. You know, nobody yes. does. We have different personalities exactly. and we talk differently. For me, it was being becoming more and more inward and fearful. Um, I had a lot of fears. I was terrified of the dark. I was terrified of death when I was a little girl. I was terrified of spiders, you know, and I just became more and more inward and sort of turned to books. And that's when that was sort of an acceptable thing to do in my family. Um, I think my fears weren't taken seriously. I don't think anybody even noticed, you know. Um, and then I would just say, like, I felt socially extremely awkward. Um, I never felt comfortable in my body, ever. I don't have any memory of feeling comfortable in my body. And um, and that that's a big one. I think when you don't feel comfortable in your body, something has caused yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of judgments coming down. I from know, I know. There's the body image issues we look. go through as a team, but this is different. This is almost like pervasive. And right. I know what you mean, because I've been there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, so for me, it was, I would say as I got older, it was like, you know, terrible discomfort in my body, socially feeling pretty shut down. Um, and I would just say mostly anxiety and depression yeah. were my main yeah. symptoms. But for some people, it's really different. For some people, they become aggressive, they become hostile, they're very, they're, their defenses become much more like outwardly pushing away. Mine were sort of pushing away at myself, you know, yeah. and protecting myself yeah. from, from protecting myself from hurt. Yeah. But I don't think I even knew that. I know. You know, I didn't know, yeah. know what I was yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. And for some people, it's becoming people pleasers and just going out of their way to please everybody or becoming workaholics. And I was kind of a workaholic. I guess I would say that was one of my coping mechanisms, too. Um, but becoming workaholic, becoming addicts, um, you, I mean, you name it. There are so many symptoms. But I think what we need to know as a society is that the more extreme those symptoms are, the more they're actually a call for help. Our symptom, it's just like if your body's in pain, it's saying something's not working in your body. And when you're displaying, you know, um, extreme emotional behaviors, whether it's extreme isolation or extreme aggression or extreme um, domination of others or extreme submission where you have no voice, it's a call for help. It's saying something's wrong with what's working in my emotional life. And I don't think we recognize no, that no. so much as a society. No, we don't. We see the symptoms without understanding there's an underlying cause to it. Yeah. Well, we blame, we blame people. people. Yeah, we, we blame the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to even add yeah. to yours, would be in addition, I mean, mine was similar, in, but in also a bit different. Definitely, I had a lot of anxieties, like nail biting. Like, I was always so anxious about things. And there was also the bedwetting phase. And um, uh, food was also, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, one of my coping mechanisms. And then yeah. and then just the, the mood, like, you know, just over the top one day and then just you know melody all the time not like you know not, not mm. bipolar but it was just and then over yeah. performing like there was this performance to be perfect you know keep the high grades you know make everybody laugh yeah. you know and man there were so many signs out there but you know what i guess the hope here is that by even having these conversations parents and guardians now some of the signs might not be relevant to your kids some might not even have those visible signs 
I think right. just being having being providing that space where they're open enough to talk to us about what they're going through. Right. That's my goal as a mom. Like the other time I was I have a daughter now and my biggest worry is that, you know, she's gonna just get into hurt. And I was talking to one of my great friends, um, Ayomide, and he he was like, You cannot protect her from it. like you can't always be there to save her from the world. And right. and that kind of stayed with me because I really do try my best to make sure she's, you know, we create a healthy and safe environment for her. But I'm more comforted in the fact that I want to be that person she wants to come to, you know, to talk about whatever. And so I'm working on myself to be that person. I don't want my my head in the cloud and, you know, never gazing on my problems, you know, detract me from being there for her emotionally whenever I want to. And if I'm not able to do that, I'm I'm replicating myself through my communities where she can have people she can Mm -hmm. open up to, you know, safe adults she can open up to. And to me, if that's one thing I'm able to do for her, I think, you know, I think that's that's something to get started, you know, with. Yeah, I think it's crucial, actually. I think um, education, I think informing our children about what what's out there in the world um, is really critical for our best survival these days. Because you're right, you can't be there at every moment, but you can arm your child with knowledge. You can arm them with understanding. You can arm them with tools and like I know when I grew up, and I think it was, you know, a lot my generation, nobody talked about anything, about anything, emotional problems, nothing. It was all just about go to school, get good grades, very well. <laughs> marry, marry the right person, and have a good yeah, profession. Yeah, that was yeah, it. Yeah. That was it. And those are good things by themselves, but there's there's got to be more to life. Yeah. 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 But you're absolutely right. I mean... If you open this space where your daughter can talk to you, then it's more likely that if something upsetting happens to her, she'll tell you. Now, if you are liberty to share a little bit about your work on sexual abuse. Now, for man, I know those can take different layers, you know, from being in a relationship or partner up with somebody or even you know, there's so many layers to that. Um, how does one go about seeking help and even understanding the pervasiveness of being exposed to in an environment? Because when I think about sex, it's such a powerful force that even in the safety of a loving partner, there's just the the, the vulnerability and just the, the, the force and all that coming together. Like you need to be in a safe environment because even in a safe environment, right. you're still questioning some things like, I get to create magic with this person. Now, how much more when you're in a place where there's a lot of abuse, there's a lot of you know, abuse yourself, how you look or what you're doing and things like that. How do we begin to seek help? And I'm speaking for both men and women because as you know, you know, they're both, right. you know, we both, they're both victims when it comes to issues like this. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, I think, I think there is a lot still a lot of shame around sexual abuse. Mm. And I think that's one of the big reasons why people don't want to talk about it. If, you know, if they're remembering or if it's happening now and they're aware of it, I think shame, I think fear, I think fear of retaliation either by the abuser or by people who support the abuser. I mean, I've had many, many clients over the years who did tell and were blamed Mm -hmm either ignored or blamed or, you know, not still not protected from the person who was hurting them. So, you know, and hopefully we have better education about that in our school systems, or at least some of them where children are encouraged to seek help outside the family. 
Um, and I know that a lot of times it is not effective. Um, and sometimes it is, you know, um, but, but that's the, that's the, the goal is that you seek help somewhere from someone who believes you and, and, or has the power to help protect you. Those are, and that you find the encouragement to do that, that you have a right to have a voice, that you have a right to be protected. And probably number one, that it's not your fault. No matter what you've been told, no matter what you've come to believe about yourself, there's something about me, or he told me I liked it, or whatever the things are that happen, it's never a child's fault or a teenager's fault. It's not even an adult's fault. Right, 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 right. Um, but we but we internalize that kind of blame, and so it keeps us silent. And so, you know, that's why, again, why um, we need to make it safe as a society for people to come forward and say, this happened to me without shame, without blame, and with a sincere desire to protect. And I think, you know, I just wanted to throw in one sure. other um, symptom that I forgot to mention, and I think this is very prevalent, and it may be more prevalent for women than it is for men, but I don't know, it may not be. And that is that you find yourself being attracted to people who are not good for you. Oh, like a cycle, and, a vicious yeah, cycle, and, yeah, victimization. Yeah, or and unable to leave yeah. even when you yeah. know it's not yeah. good for you. It's that same paralysis takes over you. Like, I can't have a voice. I can't say no. If I leave, it'll be worse. Or if I, it'll, if I leave, I'll be alone forever. Or whatever you tell yourself. So I think those are some of the, you know, if you're, if you're, and, and whether it's abuse or it's neglect or it's emotional abuse where you've just gotten horrible messages about yourself, like you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, you'll never amount to anything, no one will ever want you. I mean, people get horrible messages even without overt abuse to their bodies. Yeah. And um, if you find yourself with the, with those tape loops running in your head all the time, you weren't born with them. You learn them somewhere. Yes. So, you know, it's really important to find people, whether it's actually a therapist or friends or supportive community, who give you other messages about who you are that are good. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, just highlighting the importance of being in a safe space and then also reaching out to for help when you find yourself in these kind of patterns. Um, my, yeah, right. my next question for you is going to be this. So as someone who's, you know, gone through what you went through as a child and then also worked with victims of sexual abuse, how do you fortify yourself in the sense that you are not being so over-traumatized again, but also being there for the people you serve? And I contrast that because I I had this wonderful gynecologist. She was so, so great. And she helped deliver babies. And she's a friend of mine. But she's had a lot of struggles with trying to give, you know, um, like get pregnant naturally. And we have this conversation. Mm-hmm. How do you do it? You go to work, deliver babies, and, you know, she's happy about She loves what she does, and her, pay, her patients love her. But I know, you know, she's also had struggles trying to, you know, get pregnant. Right. So I'm just curious, you know, how do you balance those two things, you know, being there for your client while at the same time taking care of yourself? Well, I think of two things, and there's probably a hundred, <laughs> but I think, of, I think of two things right away. Well, I think of three. So one of them is you just need to do your own work because the more you do your own work, and she probably does, you know, the more I did my own, when I had a safe place to go to, I wasn't just carrying other people's trauma or upset feelings or distress because 
you know, it didn't just flood in on me because when I had my own safe place to do my own work, then that part of me got fed. And it's really important. Like, it's just like, you know, gasoline in an engine is not going to yeah. run if it has no gas. And so we have to be fed by our own safe place to have to work through our own stuff if, if that's what's getting triggered. And we have to be fed in other parts of our life. I mean, there were times I, I was a single mother for many years and, um, and there were times when I really wasn't getting fed enough in my own life. And it was really hard to continue, not because of other people's trauma, but because I was giving out all day and not getting enough back. And I really had to, I had to find ways. I started painting. Um, I spent time in nature and with friends and I would really like set those times up. I love to be in, I love I to garden. So I had to do the things that fed me and keep that part of myself fed, if that makes that sense. Um, yeah. And, and now I forget the third one. So, <laughs> 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 um, but maybe it'll come back to me. Um, but those are, but those are the, oh, the other thing was I really, because of those two things, because of doing the work on myself and because of finding, you know, very conscious ways to feed myself, I was able to make better boundaries. Mm. And, and it was with my time, you know, like, okay, just because someone is really in the middle of it, I'm still going to hold to our session is over because I, partly because I realized I needed to do that for myself, but partly because part of the healing is that you can contain what's going on inside of you and not just be a runaway train all the yes. time. You know, did I do that every single session? No, there were times when I ran over because I felt like it was appropriate, but you just sort of learn to make that psychic boundary where I, t I actually taught myself how to leave my work when I went home at the end of the day um, or left my office, which ended up being in my house. But, you know, like I, I it, it, it's almost like you have to make a conscious effort to create that boundary um, because because it's part of the healing because our boundaries were broken. And so we didn't know how to make boundaries right. or, you know, hold them with other people. Right. So, so it's all part of the so healing. True. Yeah. So true. Like it's, uh, I've had a lot of work. I can't even count how many hours and time and resources I've spent in therapy, but it's been worth it. It's because when your business oh, yeah. has been violated sexually, it's, it's beyond just that thing that was done to you. It, it's, it corrupts your whole body. And your autonomy okay. is gone. But these are not like, yeah. you know, finite statements. You can still get some of it back. It's just acknowledging and then finding ways to, like, you know, um, move from there. And oh, people say, oh, yeah, you know, therapy. Therapy is actually hard work. It's easier for you to pop a pill Very. and mask those issues. Therapy is really hard work. And if you've had to move insurance and start with a new therapist and start all over again. By the way, there needs to be an app where you can just download all of your metadata and not have to go through the whole process again of trying to get acquainted with a new therapist. I my employer yeah. switched insurance not too long ago. And so my oh. lovely therapist, I can't afford to pay you $200 per session, you know, when I have insurance. So I had to go into the marketplace again, trying to find a good match, one who was culturally, right. you know, sensitive enough to know, to know that, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm in the U.S., but I'm Nigerian, and I come with a lot of cultural baggage. So are you willing to work mm -hmm. with me on some of these things, you know? 
but hey, you know, I'm glad I found one eventually, and you know, we've been going on two years strong, yeah. praying to the gods and we, praying to God that I don't, you know, rezone her again and I have to go back into the marketplace. But these are the issues. But all that said, therapy is worth it. It's it's worth it. And if you've been burned by therapists, please, you know, you don't say because you went to a Walmart and you you had a bad experience, you stop going to a Walmart anymore. You go out there and go, I'm right. gonna find, you know, um, another person, another person, until you find your person. That's a really good point, and I was actually going to say yeah. that that you, that we that not everybody is for yes. us, you know. And if you don't resonate with someone, don't stay with mm. them. Um, and because I think a lot of people, again, because they've been so overpowered, they just feel like they have to tolerate something that isn't really good for yes. them. And so it's really important if you don't resonate with a therapist or anybody, a doctor, a, you know, whoever it is, don't stay with them. You have a right to choose differently. Very true, very true. So let's talk about a little segue here. Let's talk about the pandemic of loneliness, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm, I came from Nigeria about 12 years ago and I came here in my oh. 20s. Yes. I came to grad school and wow. I just stayed. And men talk about being lonely in the sea of people. Now, the U.S. is great for so many reasons, but one of the things that stood out was just how different it was as far as the social fabric. Now, yeah. in Nigeria, in Lagos, where I grew up, and mostly for Nigerians, you have a lot of micro-conversations that go on. The moment you get out of your house, people are just having conversations with you, whether you want to or not. It's hello, it's hi, it's oh, nice. You know, uh, you have those little conversations yeah. you have with people, or even they one-sided ones. I didn't know how much it was impacting my mental health for good until I moved to the U.S., where you don't get to see people unless you, like, put it in the box, you know. And people are friendly, but then to be friends was, like, different conversation. It was so different. And then, but, you know, I've been able to make that work. Now I have micro-communities. Like, I have a pickleball community. I have a podcast community. I have virtual communities. I'm, like, drenched in communities because that's the only way I can make it happen. Otherwise, it's not good for my soul. But since COVID happened, I think it's kind of shifted that paradigm a little bit in the sense that we don't go out as much, but we're we're learning more on technology, right? But then the sad part of that is that those that were lonely before, like the loneliest of people, they've gotten more lonely since the pandemic, right? Now, we know that's not good. We're not built to be alone. We're real man is built to be an island. Mm -hmm. What are some of your um, tips to kind of help people get out there and and seek the right kind of community? Communities that are good for their soul. And if they've been abused in the past, they definitely need the kind of good ones. So, yeah, I'm just curious to know what Mm -hmm. your thoughts are on that question. Well, some, you know, there's, there's many answers to that. And I don't actually think that there's a... First of all, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, but I also think it's a hard question in our society. We have a very strong belief in the United States in independence, <sighs> which is a total, it's a total myth. It's ridiculous, and it's counter to everything we know about what's good for yeah. people. But it's very powerful here. Like, you should be able to do it on your own. You should be able to take care of and your own there's a shame needs. for asking um, for help. There's a shame to say, you know... I almost like you yeah. want to say you did it by yourself. And I'm like, no, you know, yeah. I find myself even getting into that funk sometimes. I'm like, slow down. You're not a self-made person, <laughs> you know? 
Right. And and I think part of also because our, our culture here is, I don't know about other countries exactly, but our culture here is so mobile that people move away from their families a lot and they don't have that foundational just family support or they didn't have a family that they want to continue to relate to. Um, you know, and, and if you put on top of that, that whole where I'm a self-made man kind of thing, that it is very hard to reach out for help. I think one of the best, I mean, there's a couple of, you know, sort of probably known ways to start to reach out. And that is just to be more open yourself with other yeah. people, because a lot of people actually crave that openness, but they don't know how to generate sure. it. And if somebody doesn't want it, they'll disappear from your life. But a lot of people really crave that kind of openness and greater, um, comfort with being more intimate or more, you know, just more like who I really am rather than who I think you want me to be or what I think is going to impress you or whatever. Um, and that can happen out of doing some of the basic work on yourself. So you've healed some of the most, you know, the most painful wounds that keep you defended. Um, and it's also doing what you love in life. Mm. Because you're more likely to find the people that you resonate with, whether it's a church that you want to belong yes. to, or an art group, or a healing group, or a nature group, or, you know, someone who, you know, volunteers at an animal shelter because they love animals. I mean, if we follow the things that we love, there's more chance that you're going to meet like-minded people. So those are two, you know, I think accessible ways yeah. um and sometimes if that doesn't work there's just more healing is, to do of, of whatever shut you down yes, yes, you know yes. yeah. something a friend of mine um a psychiatrist from my army they always say is like about you know something you know how you get hurt by people and then you want to climb up inside he goes the same people who hurt you not like the same same but people who are just those the same people would heal you you need to find those communities and i loved your emphasis on starting with your own interests you know, and it was works for me. You know, I used to have a Toastmasters group, mm -hmm. my pickleball community. Mm -hmm. Like that things I wow. love to do. Things I love to do. You can't find me in any of that space. You know, if I find joy in those activities, best believe I'm gonna find community there. And it makes life so easy because when work gets too stressful, guess what? I'm on the courts. You know, like you know, stressing yeah. it out, or maybe doing my podcast with my friends, or you know, my podcast community where we just you know share some best practices. Totally. So yeah. Start with what you love and find your communities. And sometimes you don't even have to leave the comfort of your home. Although it might be nice to get out there once in a while. Yeah. You know, we have the internet now where the world yeah. is so globally connected. So thank you so much for this. Um, now, let's talk about just your writing. Man, um, yeah. was it Doris who said it? I hate writing, but I love to have written, right? I imagine how, you know, congratulations on three books, by the way. And I imagine it hasn't been a walk in the park. Maybe just tell us a little bit about your two books and the process behind it. And then let's spend a bit more time on your latest book, American Therapy. Thank you. Yeah. I always wanted to be a writer ever since, you know, I knew that I wanted to be something when I grew up, it was always that I wanted to be a writer mm. and I don't know, I was just born that way. Um, and I, I loved writing in school. I loved writing papers. I loved reading books. I, and, I, and then when I was, you know, a little bit older, probably after, I don't know, probably, probably when I had children, mm. I started journal writing and I, you know, had like stacks of journals that I kept. And, um, and then I would write little pieces. Um, 
and I just, I just, I write, wrote poetry for a long time. I was in a little poetry group. Um, I've, I've been in a writing group with a couple of other women for I don't even know how many years now. Between ten and between fifteen and twenty years, we've been together. And and talk about having community around something you love. You know, I I met these women at a writing conference, and we've been together ever since. Um, so. Writing was always my path. I always, and I always really felt it's not just that I loved writing, but I felt like that's how I connected to myself. Mm. Like that's how I connected to my deepest inspiration, um, thoughts and feelings and understandings that I might not have just been able to sit down and think about. It always came through writing. Um, but the inspiration for my first book was really, uh, which was called A Light in the Darkness. Mm. Those two books were kind of sequential. Um, they one follows the other, uh, a light in the darkness and into the fire, and they were they were primarily the, the the whole first part of the first book is autobiographical, and it's just pretty much chronicling my life, um, and you know my my the way I moved through what happened to me as a child, and sort of began to come out the other side, and so part of the healing for that for me was. I call it a spiritual connection, but you could also just call it a connection to your deepest self, your soul, your essence. And so those two books kind of chronicle that part of my experience. And, um, and my, and then I, I haven't, I don't remember when I wrote the second one, but this, the, the third book, America and Therapy is really very different. It's, it's sort of, um, it really is that I want to bring the understandings that I've gotten as a psychotherapist and having done my own work or am continuing to do my own work. It's never over. Um, I want to really say that. It's not like I'm done with yeah. my work. Um, and working with so many people over the years and seeing the prevalence of abuse and neglect and seeing the horrible toll it takes on people. It's devastating to our psyches to be hurt by other human beings. And I don't think we really understand that as a society. And I don't think we understand that if we continue as a country, as national policy or local policy or state policy um, to target certain populations and discriminate and withhold resources from certain people or judge certain people as inferior or that they deserve whatever they get because they're lazy or they're, they're inferior by nature or whatever. If we continue to do that, which is exactly what happens in an abusive family, like she deserved it or he deserved it because he or she did blah, blah. Um, if we continue to enact those same um, dynamics on masses of people we're going to have and we do have it's not like a future thing we do have untold numbers of highly symptomatic people and, you know there's the prevalence of drug yes. abuse the, the increasing um, incidence yeah. of gun yeah. violence and shooting of innocent people and murder of innocent people and police brutality and you know, discrimination, you know, that you can name a hundred ways, ways yeah, of discrimination yeah, in place. Yeah. Um, and sexual violence and sexual discrimination, gender discrimination, all of it. These are dynamics. And I say this very loud and clear in my book that none of us want in our own lives. But somehow we are OK to perpetrate them on other people. And that is a sign of mental ill health. So one of the big one of the big things that I say in my book, and, and there's sort of a lot of like big points that I'm hoping to make, is that that's not really a political issue. It's not our discrimination against other people is not an ideological issue. 
our making war and violence against other people is not a, a, essentially an ideological issue. It's a mental health issue. People who murder other people are suffering some kind of mental disturbance, emotional disturbance. And our goal needs to be to prevent that, not just target people and punish them. Yeah, sometimes there are people that need to be restrained because they're just not safe for society. But our goal needs to be prevention. What are the societal conditions, the policies that we have, the attitudes that are often um, proposed and spouted by people in positions of power that are discriminatory, that are violent, that lead to violence. Because this is where we need to bring the best of what we know to mental health, of mental health to bear. And that's really the reason why I wrote the book. But there's many reasons why I wrote the yeah. book. But it's sort of looking through the lens of the microcosm of an abusive or neglectful family and putting that lens on our country and saying, we're not actually promoting mental health in our country. And there's many signs of mental ill health from the bottom up and from the top down that desperately need to be addressed because people are suffering and people are dying. And our children are not growing up in a world where many, many, many children do not feel welcome. And that's not right. Well, um, I think you've taken it back to the fundamental, which is the family unit, which is not a very popular opinion these days, right? And and I, I, I so agree with you because I think if we focused on um, supporting the family and 100%. draining roots and even oh. having some policies in place that are so family-friendly and that can also help. And I, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a world where oh, everything is going to be hunky-dory. But I, I know for a fact that sometimes, so take for example, you know, I have a job, my husband has a job, and I, I'm, I feel very fortunate about that. Now, with a child, and sometimes having to take time off work, she's supposed to start pre-K in August, but they're telling me that she doesn't have access to after-school care. And I'm thinking, from 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock, how am I supposed to take care of her? Like, I shouldn't. Like, as a parent, I should feel like I, I have support by my by the society in a way to provide that kind of access to my... To, to, for, now, we have to, like, right. you know, go do private care and all that. What if I didn't have the resources to do it? Right. 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 You either have a children who's child who's sitting home alone at a very inappropriate age or they're left with people that are less than safe or you can't work and you suffer. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I really want to emphasize what you said, because that that is key. Like we don't want to just look at parents and say, why aren't you doing a better job? Or why did you explode when you came home from work? Or you were maybe treated poorly or you can't earn enough money or whatever. We don't want to just blame people. Like what are the conditions that would help parents parent better? And it would be a society on so many levels that would provide 
you know, much more affordable or free access to childcare that would pay better wages, that would give people better housing, better access to medical care, better opportunities for education, because these are all the stressors in people's lives that make them explode. Yes, yes, right? yes. yes. Or, or explode on themselves and commit suicide or take drugs or whatever. So it's sort of like the it's it's sort of like exactly what's happened in the field of medicine. You don't if somebody's liver is, you know, not functioning properly, you look at the whole body. Yeah. You don't just say what's wrong with the liver, you know, is are they drinking too much? Is there something wrong? I, you know, I don't know what causes liver disease. <laughs> so but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you look at the whole body and say what's contributing to this organ not working properly, not just like we have to do one drug that targets the liver. And, and again, I'm probably talking nonsense. No, 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 but I get you all the Like, how are you trying to make that like Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. So, so we don't want to do that with individuals. Exactly. You don't want to tell us what's wrong with that person. It's like, what's wrong with the system they live in? It doesn't support them to be healthy. Yeah. And, I don't, yeah, and I know the example I gave is just, you know, it's a low hanging fruit. It's one. a good one, but in the grand scheme of things, there's still serious issues. And maybe because it's just them at my school, but I imagine for people who come from who have um, single parent homes, those issues are more compounded. And I'm not saying you know, oh, we should keep yeah. supporting so people can. No, no, but it's what it is. If the kids are here right now, those people also need support because I can't even imagine doing it by myself. You know, and I don't know how you did it whenever you um you had your kids and you were single before you got married. You know, I imagine you had a lot of struggles as well. Oh, it was really hard, but it wasn't as hard for me as it was for some people. And I will say that emotionally, it was emotionally, it was really hard. I mean, I, it was really hard. I don't myself know how I got through it, but I did because I love my children and I would never give up. Um, but I was fortunate because um, I, I left my first husband Right. I can't remember if I was still in graduate school or I had just graduated. Um, and so I was working for $11 an hour. $11? What well, year was this? Uh, that was like, I don't know. Like in today's dollar, what's it going to be like in today's? Well, it's still higher than the minimum wage. Though, but still, was it Was it adequate then or no? No, no. And um, both my ex-husband's family and my family helped support us for a little while until I earned a better wage. I don't think most people have support, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 my dad helped me buy a house. Oh. That was. Oh, your dad helped you buy a house. Oh, wow. He helped me buy a house. He gave me the down payment for that's a house. A, that's a good deal. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really had it better than a lot of people and it was still really hard. So if I hadn't been able to put food on the table, if I had to rent a place that had cockroaches in it, I don't know what I would have done. You know, I can't imagine. And I know that's the case for so many people um, or who become homeless. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, really hard. And, And again, that's why I emphasize like, what would it be like to have a government, to have government officials, people who are elected by the people that they're supposed to serve, who actually were talking about what people need, about about their homes, about enough food, about food on the table, about adequate resources to send their children, you know, to college. I don't think that's the conversation we're hearing. And I'm just I'm just appalled by it. 
Like, why aren't we talking about what people actually need to have, to bring up their children in a healthy way, to feel like they matter in this society? I think so many people don't matter. I had a client, um, she was divorced, single woman who was in her 50s, who worked for a company that was sold to a large corporation. She had worked for that company for most of her adult life. The company was sold to a large corporation and they brought in somebody who knew absolutely of nothing course. about the experts. In <laughs> she tried to sit down with this person and say, this is how it actually works here in New Mexico with the populations that I work mm-hmm. with. And they fired her. They fired her. They didn't want her feedback. And this is just, it's just. What? I think, it's, yeah. Oh, that's mean. And I think that's what people feel. They feel like they're disposable. I think many people are in situations where they just feel like, yeah, we don't need you. We'll find somebody else who'll probably work for less. Um, it's it's just tragic. And we, we need a people-centered economy, um, a people-centered government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So true, so true. Because at the heart of it, it's still service to people, the people you've been called to serve, right? Um, now, real quick, as we kind of go down, we've talked a lot, I mean, about the importance of mental health, but also taking it back to the family. Um, the holidays are almost yeah. around the corner, right? And for a lot of people, they might end up having to go back to those dysfunctional settings with their families. What are some coping strategies, especially when you're from a family that is not quite functional? And because we know that definitely has a lot of impact on the mental health. How do they navigate those kind of issues? Or maybe you have a parent that is, for lack of a better word, and I hate using this word because everybody uses it, toxic, you know? Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody yeah. can be toxic. But yeah. Let me yeah. just put that yeah. um, blanketed statement out there. Like you, you, you cannot but communicate with these people because you have family, but you know they're not good for your mental health. How can they navigate yeah. those kind of issues? Well... I think it takes a lot of strength to do it. And I also think that for many people, and it was really very much like this for myself for many years, and not that I still can't be triggered by my family because Mm -hmm. I can. Um, But for many years, you know, it was really hard because I would leave feeling sort of like the invisible person Mm -hmm. I felt like growing up. And, and then I have to recover from that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I have to spend days recovering from feeling like a nobody or whatever mm-hmm. I felt like. Um, so, you know, over time though, I practiced having boundaries basically. And, and it took me a long time actually to do this because one of the, one of the, one of the ways that, one of the things that really helped me with boundaries was I'm the kind of person that if you ask me how I am, I'll tell you. You know, now in my life, when I was younger, I wouldn't say anything, mm-hmm. but, but I'll tell you, this is what's going on. This is where things are good. This is where I've had a hard time, right? Well, I realized that that was the wrong thing to do in my family because I, I would just end up feeling diminished by how much I shared <laughs> when other, other, nobody else shared that way. So I would end up feeling like I'm sharing and then everybody else is kind of a closed book. They look good. Everything's fine with them, and I'm still the black sheep of the family, right? So I learned not to do that. I, I, I learned that it was actually healthier for me to say, yeah, everything's fine. This is fine. That's fine. 
it's it's not that I was lying. It's that I was putting up a healthy boundary in a situation where being more open actually wasn't the healthy thing to do. Got it. Um, Got it. Does that make it sense? Does, it does. Like you, you just have to adjust. Like, like a learned performance in a way. Yeah. Know your audience yeah. basically. Then, That's what it's, it comes down to. Yeah. Totally. That's a good way to put it. And it took me a long time to do that because that wasn't in my nature to do. Um, you know, at a certain point in my life. And now it's like, oh, that you know, it's not what I want. What would what I want? I would rather have that intimacy be two ways. I would like to feel really close to the people in my family. But the truth is, they don't feel close to me. And it's okay. I have other people that I do feel close to who feel close to mm. me. And that's where I put that energy, you know? I like that. I like that. I like that. It's okay. It's what it is. It's okay. It's, okay. it's what it is. It's what it is. And sometimes, you know, I think there's a phase um, that many people go through, and I've seen this with many clients, where you really do pound on the door that feels closed. Yes. And that's part of our growth. And then at a certain point, you know what? It's no longer useful. I pounded on the doors that were closed as a way to strengthen myself. And then at a certain point, it was like, I don't need to pound on those Anymore. doors. I want to go to the doors that are open. Yes, for me. So, and they can not like throw, throw like, you know, the red carpet down on the floor, but at least they welcome me and I feel safe. Right. Yeah. Right. Man, that's some wisdom right there. When to let go. And I think because we're just yeah. goal-oriented individuals for the most part, we just want to, you know, try our best. Like, you know, I don't want to give up. I just want to give it just a little bit more nudge. But, yeah. Okay, yeah. just let it go. And it, yeah, and it's okay if I do it and I make a mistake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I imagine it's very painful when it's family because those are the people that are conditioned to love you regardless, but it's not always a perfect right. world out there. You know Right. And sometimes yeah. they're not your soul family or your spirit, your your heart family. Sometimes they're the people that you learned your lessons I know, with. And that's I know. The, and sometimes my find family outside of your family. Cause, so there's this saying in my culture that blood is thicker than water. It's really just emphasizing that your family is your family. But sometimes yeah. you have better kinship with those that are not related to you by blood. You know, it, right. it's just, it's it's not ideal. But again, back to what what we talked about, can you go find where your people are. It might not be within your family. Yeah. Sadly enough, it's right. not a perfect world. That's right. it's, it's really been nice chatting with you today and I feel like I need to bring you back I would like to explore suicide with you um, I am reading this book well I think I'm almost done with it Stay, you probably know it in your circles um, Stay uh, Philosophy Surrounding Suicides it's called Stay S-T-A-Y oh yeah oh no I'll look oh, it yeah. up it's, it's my goodness it, it really it kind of goes back to that thing you talked about individualism and that line we've been told. And so it's a history of suicide and the philosophies against it is by Jennifer, Jennifer Michael Hecht. And the premise of that is that you don't own your life. Like mm. you being alive is a predictor of somebody else being alive. And when that sequence mm. is gone, because the predictor of someone committing suicide is one of the strongest predictors of suicide is knowing someone who's committed suicide. So in that way, we're all linked, you know, and that life yeah. of, you know, this is my life, you know, this is my life. Uh, my friend was sharing with me, there's this new movie, which I haven't seen yet, um, Across the Spider-Verse. 
And there was a spot Miles was saying, you're not just you. Now he was saying, it's my life. It was my life. And then he was corrected and he was told, no, it's not, you're, you're not you. You're who you belong to. A lot of us have contributed to make you here. And literally in that That's sense, right. your father, your mother came together at one point to make you. So you're not, it's not just your life. That's you right. know, there's so many people depending on you and who look up to you in one way or the other. They might not be able to articulate it. So I'd like to bring you back and really explore suicide um, and mental yeah. health and, you know, cyberbullying and online. Um, I love that concept. I want to say that I love that concept because it's not only that we're interconnected by who brought us here, yeah. but we affect every person we interact with. Yeah. It is an interconnection. Yeah. We're affected by all the people we interact with, and the more mentally and emotionally healthy they are, the better food they are for us. Yes. And the more mentally and emotionally healthy we are, yeah. the better food we are for other human beings. Okay. And I think that's it's that's what it's all about. And that's what I want for our country. Yeah, yeah. That's what I want for our I'll country. I'd like to bring you back and do that because... Um, Thank you. I'd love yeah, to. I think it's so important. And even talking to a professional like you will also help to, you know, add more um, substance to our conversation. But for those who might want to find right. you, um, for for your new book, yeah, where can they find? Where can they yeah. get your book and all of yeah. that? Um, I'm not sure when it's going to be released, but I've been told that I now have a publisher, so that's really right. exciting news. <laughs> um, so I will certainly let you know when it's available. Okay. But. Um, yeah, but you can find me on my website. That's one of the best places, which is www.phyllislevitt.com. And that's Phyllis with two L's and one S and Levitt, L-E-A-V-I-T-T. Okay. And there's a little sign-up box right on the top of the website where if you sign in with your email, um, I can tell you exactly when my book has been released and send you my newsletters and just keep you up to date. But I have a lot of podcast interviews on my website, and I'm I'm just in the process of creating a new website, so that should be up soon. But I'm also on LinkedIn and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Okay. So you can find me in any of those places. And thank you for asking. Of course, of course. Yeah, and we'll link all of that in the show notes. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. Now, before you go real quick, um, I'll give you this. Um, I do this every often now and then because I've asked you a lot okay. of questions. You've been very great at responding. I don't think you're curious to know about the podcast or the host or just, this is like a wild card question. Any questions you'd like okay. to ask me? Now I'm turning it back to you. <laughs> Oh, you want me to ask you if a you question? Have, if you have, if, you, if there's anything you want to ask. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah tell me. Uh, I think it's, I always like to know what had you become a podcaster? What had you become interested in being not only a forum for other people to have their voice to a larger audience, which I think is such a valuable service today in our world, um, but that had you interested in hearing what other people have to say? What was that like for you? If, if I ask, every time I ask this question, if I made a dollar, I think I'll be like maybe $2,000 rich right now. Um, let me see. <laughs> I, I think I've always, I have stories within me. That's one, but I've always been fascinated mm. with people's processes. Right. I think one of the good things, and I'm very careful when I say this, one of the gifts, because when you go through trauma, I get to define the meaning I want to attribute to it. We can acknowledge the two truths. Trauma is bad. Like what I went through was bad. But I can also think about the gift it's afforded me. I think it's yeah. being able to be attuned to people's suffering. There's just That's there's right. just something about it. And I'm not I'm not perfect. I've I've dropped the ball. I've disappointed people. I've not always said the right things. But of I'm course. able to just in like discomfort and suffering, there's a way I can just connect to it. 
you know. And so my podcast just, you know, became that platform to really explore the stories that are bound in people. Because I strongly mm-hmm. believe that we have so much more in common than what separates us. And even if we have differences, it's okay. I don't have to agree with everything right. you do. I don't have to agree with how you live your life. As a matter of fact, I think that's what makes the world very such an interesting place that we live our lives in different ways. You know? But what are those yeah. things that we can connect with? Or even the, the points of contention. Can we still have discussions about it without attacking the person? You know? And yeah. Um, so, yeah. But I had to clean up house. I had daddy issues. I had, you know, traumas I hadn't explored fully. And I knew that there was no way I could stand in front of the mic if I hadn't done my work. Now, there were some things right. I needed to do immediately, but I'm still unraveling myself in front of the mic. So I'm, I'm still a work in progress. Right. Always going to be a work in progress until I die. I'm always going to be a work in progress. But I knew I had to, one, confront the biggest thing was my dad because I, I had a hatred for him. So that I had to mm. do that and forgive him and let it go. Because I was holding on to him, and that kind of held me back creatively. You talked about writing being a space for you. Writing has always been a therapy for me. Because it helps me sometimes even exercise some of those demons and, you know, hard thoughts that I'm, you know, holding on to. So I've used writing as a platform. So my writing has evolved into just talking about things. So this is why I do the podcast. I really want people to know that whatever they're going through, they're not alone. Like, we... We, we, we are so similar in our struggles it, it's all mind-blowing and as a host and i look like i look mm-hmm. at what you're going through right now i can relate to someone that i know in nigeria you know and who will have tongue that you know we have so many similarities despite you know being worlds apart that's my reason that that work for the podcast is my purpose for the podcast to show that same same but different thread that runs through all of us yeah that's beautiful and i love what you said work in progress because I feel the same way and I feel like that's that's what it, is. What it is and that's yeah. beautiful we don't we don't we're not supposed to arrive we are a work in progress and we're always learning something new and that's the beauty um yeah, yeah. yeah. and the other thing that I really love that you said I'll just it's okay too, <laughs> go that, ahead um, no, is that, well I love that you said because it was really true for me like all the things that happened to me that were really painful have been the source of my transformation. And I think amen. that's what we hold for each other. Amen. That's what we give amen. each other. Amen, yeah. amen, amen. And I know not everyone has gotten to that space where they're able to talk about it. Man, there's hardly anything I haven't shared. And it wasn't something I started, you know, back to back to back. It took me a lot of time. It took me three years oh, to yeah. talk about my issues with infertility and pregnancy losses. But I'll tell you that I've gotten to a place mm-hmm. where I'm able to mentor people through it. Like, I'm still going through it because, you know, I have a daughter now, but it was through, and no but, because it's a beautiful thing. It was through adoption, you know. And okay. so, like, the, the the biological fulfillment of, you know, motherhood, I haven't attained that yet. Mm-hmm. But there's still beauty in mm-hmm. it. I can acknowledge the, the grief with that, but also the beauty that I now have by parenting my, my lovely daughter. But being able to show that process and let people know, it's okay. You can That's talk beautiful. about those two things. And I love the, the, the amount of love I have for my daughter. It's sometimes often, often punctuated by the grief I feel by not being able to fulfill that biological, what's the word, duty or whatever it is, you know. But it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's okay to be that way. It's sometimes I get lost in the funk. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, my head is in the cloud. But I'm, I, I just want to keep sharing that. It's okay. It's okay to feel that way. It's and then even with the sexual yeah. abuse, you know, talking about it and, you know, having to therapize it with, you know, my community. But I had to make sure I do the work on myself because I'm not going to come out here and be like a whole mess and get that vulnerability hangover. But those moments of, of, of vulnerability have transformed my life. And 
Right. You know, and I know there's still some shame that I'm still processing, but guess what? I'm not where I used to be, you know? So yeah, yeah you're so right about that. Like the things I've gone through, I've used them as a way to kind of build myself up and hopefully my community as well. And you do. I mean, you clearly do. So that's very beautiful and very And I love your questions, yeah. by the way. Thank you so much. I'll let you, I'll, oh, I'll let you, you. go now because I think it's way, way past the hour. But thank you. And I will bring you back. Thank you. Um, I'm going to make okay. it to my assistant to find. I would like to, for it to be a panel because I know a friend who attempted suicide at the age of eight. I'd like for us to have like mm. a panel style conversation on. I love that. I would love that. Maybe victims who've lost, you know, children or loved ones through suicide. Someone who attempted it, and then you, and then you know, I think that would be very helpful for the community to just see the life cycle. I love it because you know that's that's the goal for it. Anyways, thank you, Phyllis, and um, thank you, thank you so much, thank you so much. All right, take care. Bye. All right, guys, this was the podcast, and oh my goodness, it's just been great being able to. Everyone sees into um, the mental health domains and the importance of just taking care of one's health. And I'll bring her back. We have to do suicide. So I'm putting this note down for my assistant to um, make that note. In any event, thank you for sticking out with this episode of the podcast. And I remain your host, Ms. Sybil. Love you guys. And please, please take care of your health. All right. Till next time. Mm-hmm.